Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go to Bethel, and live there, and make an altar to God, who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments, and let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had, and the rings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the dark, the oak, which is near Shechem. As they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. And he and all the people who were with him, he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel, under the oak. It was named Alun Bakuth. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came to Padam Aram, and he blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I give to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you. I will give you the land to your descendants. Give the land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth, and she suffered severe labor. When she was in severe labor, labor, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. It came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Ben-Oni, but his father named him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way, Ephrath, that is Benjamin, to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Jacob set up a pillar over her grave, that is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. They journeyed, then journeyed, then Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. It came about while Israel was dwelling in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now there were twelve sons of Jacob, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon and Levi, and Judah and Issachar, Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maid, Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's maid, Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padam Aram. Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre of Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, when Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, an old man of ripe age, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Let us pray. 
Our gracious God and Father, we do need ever so desperately now your help. Help us to hear. Help us to believe. Help us to understand. Eliminate distractions from our minds and our hearts. As we are confronted with your word this morning, uh, let us say, along with those who are truly God's people, all that God has said we will do. Let us not hear God's word and debate it, but rather, rather let us hear God's word and submit to it. We thank you, Lord, that you will be with us. Do so for Christ's sake and for the good of your people. In your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Brothers and sisters, we come now to the 35th chapter of the book of Genesis and to this account of Jacob going up to Bethel and building an altar there by the order and direction of God. And it will be there up at Bethel. And yes, I am emphasizing its height for Bethel was an elevated place. And those of you who have been walking through any kind of biblical theology with us know that this is therefore a, a type of the temple of the Lord. And it is there at Bethel where God will confirm the new name that he had given to Jacob and where he renewed to him, that is Jacob, the promises of the multiplication of his seed and of their inheriting the land of Canaan. And God even says to Jacob, and kings will come from you. We ultimately know that the, the greatest king that will come from Jacob will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords, that is, Jesus Christ. The Lord appeared to Jacob while Jacob was in his great distress. Did you notice that? In the previous chapter, Jacob's daughter Dinah was raped. By the prince of Shechem named Shechem in retaliation to this despicable act, his sons deceived the whole city, asking them to circumcise themselves. And while they were in great pain, took advantage of their pain in order to position themselves to enact revenge upon these men or at least the one man and all of his people who violated their sister Dinah. They didn't just enact revenge on Shechem. Uh, not just on Shechem and not just on his father. But on every single male in the city. Everyone paid for Shechem's sin. Jacob was greatly distressed over the thought that because of this massacre of people that he would now have to contend with all of the surrounding peoples who would have no doubt heard about the massacre and would have, who would have wanted their own revenge upon Jacob and his sons. Jacob rebukes his sons by saying to them in the 34th chapter, you've made me odious, that is, that is you've made me a stench among the inhabitants of the land. 
Therefore, Jacob was fearful of his next step. He was insecure about his next step because of what his sons had done. His path was unclear. His direction was uncertain. And why was Jacob walking in the fog, as it were, without direction? It was because of his own disobedience. If you remember last week, Jacob is walking with uncertainty. Jacob is walking with insecurity. Because of Jacob's own disobedience. Rather than going to Bethel as God had commanded him to go, we learned last week that Jacob settled 20 miles short of Bethel, that is, 20 miles or one day short of obedience to God. And it was there in Shechem, or even there in Jacob's disobedience, that Jacob was forced by God to taste the bitter fruits of disobedience. I hope that that was clear last week. And it is this. You and I won't get away with sin. When we sin, God will not allow us to rest in the fact that we are sinning. God will not allow us to, if we belong to him, he will not allow us in our conscience and in our hearts to rest peacefully at night in our sin. When we are in sin, we will not be lying on a bed of roses. We will be lying on a bed of nails. If you truly belong to Christ, you cannot continue to live in your sin and sit sleep peacefully at night. Which is a warning to us, isn't it? That if we are living in sin and doing so blissfully, oh dear God. May he awaken us to the cost of our sin. Not only what it will cost us if we pursue and continue on that road of sin, but if we are a believer, what our sin has cost our Christ, his very life. Jacob's bitter fruit that he tasted there in Shechem was one catastrophe after catastrophe. It was one uh, disaster after another until his sons come home one day with the blood of an entire people on their hands and the spoils from their vengeance draped over their shoulders. One disobedience, one day short, has led to all of this. And it would be sad, wouldn't it, brothers and sisters, if that was the end of the story. But praise be to God, it is not the end of the story. It is almost as if in verse 1 of chapter 35, after all of this catastrophe... And then God, after all of this, and then God, and, and aren't we thankful for the and then God's in our lives? The moments when we have, by our own disobedience and by our own sin, 
walked into the thickness of fog, so thick that we could not see what is left, right, up or down. And then God, by his grace and then God, in his mercy and then God, blows a strong wind and removes all of the uncertainty and all of the insecurity so that we could finally, at least for a little while, once again, see. We should be thankful for those times. When we are in great distress, the Lord comes and gives us undeserved grace, undeserved direction. Aren't you glad that you're not wandering anymore? Aren't you glad that you're not lost anymore? And that's where Jacob was. If I go to the right, we may be attacked. If I go to the left, we may be attacked. If I go backwards, I'll go back into sin. I know I'm supposed to go forward, but how can I take one step forward when I know that there may be danger that lies ahead of me? And God appears to Jacob and says, Up, arise, go to Bethel. God spoke to Jacob either by dream or by vision, by impulse or in his own mind. But either way, God speaks to Jacob and says, up, out of this place of distress, out of this place of insecurity, get up and go. God appeared to Jacob and gave him the direction that he needed, the direction that he lacked. And this morning, we will be observing really the tail end of the story of Jacob that we've been following for some time now. It has been a wonderful story about God's remarkable dealings in a man that has been given a name that has expressed his very nature. He, he was a grasper and a twister. And he's lived up to every bit of what his name has meant, hasn't he? And yet God for 20 years, and we could say even God for the whole of his life, but especially over the 20 years of Jacob's life in Haran, has been untwisting this twisted man. And here, in this 35th chapter, we are finally seeing Jacob almost straightened out. And I say almost because we are seeing Jacob kind of at the climax of his life here. The story of Jacob, he will still be involved in the story, but he will not be the focus of the story after this chapter. When we come to the end of the chapter, we will notice that all of the sons of Jacob are named. And they are named because the scriptures are doing for us a transition. They are saying we are now moving from the focus of Jacob to now the focus of Jacob's sons. In the next chapters, we will see dealings of Judah. And then for a large portion of the rest of the scriptures, we will see the life of Joseph. Which I think many of us have been waiting for on the edge of our seats for. But today we will see the wonderful height that Jacob has taken to literally by going up to Bethel as God returns him to the place where he first appeared to him. So then today, with God's help, we shall consider just two points for our consideration and see what we might gain from this climactic chapter. Number one, 
is Jacob's undeserved commitment to God, or unreserved, I'm sorry, unreserved commitment to God. Unreserved commitment to God. This is verses 1 through 15. The chapter opens with Jacob coming to a realization that he is in desperate need of God. And he comes to this need because God makes him aware of it. The Lord comes to Jacob in the midst of his crisis and almost in haste says to Jacob, get up, go to Bethel. And the Lord reminds Jacob of why he should obey him by saying something like this. Do you remember when you fled from your brother Esau in fear? And I'm sure Jacob's response was yes. And God's response may have been something like, do you remember who it was who met with you when you were in great terror? Do you remember who it was who gave you precious promises and who sustains you and who has sustained you these 20 years? And Jacob's response, like many of us, would be, oh, yes, Lord, how could I forget Twenty years prior, the Lord had appeared to Jacob and gave to him the precious promises of Abraham and Isaac. And Jacob promised the Lord that if the Lord would keep his promises, that if God would protect him and go with him and bring him home, that Jacob would give the whole of himself to, to the Lord when he returned. And it seemed that there were times when Jacob did forget this vow. It seemed that there were times when Jacob was acting very much so like the twisted man that he had been named. It seemed like there were many times when Jacob held back unreserved obedience to God. And we notice this last time that he has come back to the very edge of the promised land, but not all the way in. That although he's made this vow to God, he, he seems to stop short again of obedience, not going all the way to Bethel, the place where God had promised, or the place where God had met him and the place where he promised that he would meet God. He stops short. And again, we saw the disastrous consequences of his disobedience. And Jacob would learn, like all of us must learn, that God will not settle. God will not settle for half-hearted obedience to him. And dear ones, can I say to you this morning, it is either all or nothing with God. And it is more than just saying, I give my all to you, isn't it? Because God sees past our lip service. God sees our heart. We could be like the Saul's of the world who say, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Now will you be with me? And the Lord says to us, just as he said through the prophet Samuel, God is not after your lips, Saul. God is after your heart. And if you are not willing to give your heart to God, 
then know this, he will settle for nothing less. God will not tolerate, brothers and sisters, lukewarmness. It's detestable to him. God will spit you out of his mouth if you are lukewarm before him. It is either all or nothing. It is hot or cold, not in between. You ever had a warm soda in the summer? Jacob was slowly learning, as the martyr Jim Elliot once said, it takes the whole of your life to learn to give the whole of your life to God. But now at last, he is fulfilling the vows that he has made. Now at last, he is going back to Bethel. And it's interesting to see what he does as he prepares himself and his family to return to the gateway of heaven, as it were. Verse 6 or verse 2, he says, So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves. Change your garments and let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. It is though he is saying at this moment of unreserved consecration to the Lord, there are two things that are absolutely vital for all of us. The first is a renunciation of all false gods. What are false gods, brothers and sisters? Let me be clear about what Jacob was not saying to the people. Jacob was most likely not referring to the false gods that were stolen by Rachel, his wife. You know, that false god that was stolen from her father's house. You know, that false god that her father chased them across the desert for. That false god, you know, that fit inside of her saddlebag that she sat on to hide. More likely, it is the false gods that the sons of Jacob have stolen from the Shechemites. As plunder from their massacre. Most likely it is those trinkets that they have taken as part of the spoil. And it is more probable that these false idols were brought back into the camp. And they are, they are there now among the people of God. And God is calling the people of God to the holy place of God. Therefore, those false gods cannot remain in the camp. They must be removed. The people in Jacob's camp, what do they do? I'm sure that there was at least a temptation to say, okay, but not this one. Or, or not this one. Hiding them wherever they might at least be tempted to. But there was none of that. What we read in the scriptures is that they brought all of their false gods. And they took even the, the earrings out of their ears. Now, those of you who are wearing earrings this morning, uh, this, this is not speaking about maybe the earrings that you are wearing. More than likely, it was they were earrings that had inscriptions of pagan gods on them. More than likely, they were earrings that represented something of a worship to a false and pagan god. And they were taking these things out of their ears and bringing all of the false gods to Jacob. 
And dear ones, did you notice what Jacob did when all of the foreign and false gods were brought to him? Jacob takes them. And the Nazbi says that he hides them. Another version may say, yours may say, that he buries them under a tree. He was, in a sense, putting these false gods to death. He was, in a sense, burying them or placing them where they belong, out of sight and out of mind. And at this point, we can be rather dismissive of this moment until we realize that we are in some wise looking in a mirror, aren't we? What do I mean? What are those things that God is demanding of you to give to him? And let's be more specific. What are those false gods? What are those trinkets? Those things that take our time and our mind and our heart and our energy. What are those things that are robbing us and that we are allowing to rob us from true devotion to God? God is saying, bring them here. Bury them here. What are those things, those places, those peoples that we have kept in our back pocket. That we are even now, as God is confronting you by his word. That we are even now saying, but Lord, or not even but Lord, maybe the Lord won't see this one. Maybe I can hide it here, as Pastor Isaiah prayed in the morning. What are those things, those people, those places, those trinkets that you have stuffed into the closet and hid somewhere? Those things that only you know are there. You and God, that is. We're often like little children, aren't we? When we have something that we want, and we, the parents, come to them and say, show me what is in your hand. And they, placing it in the other hand, say, nothing. Show me your other hand. They switch. Nothing. Nothing. Now show me both. And there it falls behind them. We would do so well to finally say to God, God, here it is. And confess, take it from me. It's done me no good. It's only kept me from you. It's not drawn me closer to you. What are those things in your life? And for many of us, we need to be honest. Who are those people in your life? You can't have both. Do you notice that in Scripture? He's, he's not saying you can bring them along. They've got, they've got to stay. They can't go with us. It is, it, it's reminding us of, of Abraham's two sons, isn't it? He, can't, he could not have both. There was going to be conflict that they both lived in his camp. It's either going to be Isaac 
or it's going to be Ishmael. My wife, and I have to admit this, I, I used God's word to woo my wife to me. At a youth camp many, many years ago, I preached a sermon. You're going to either have to go with the Ishmael's or the Isaac's of your life. The Ishmael's are no good for you. And I looked right at her. I said, but the Isaac's were made for you. (laughs) Who are those people? that need to be buried, if you will. Those things that need to be left behind because they will only harm and hurt and distract and deter you from your God. You can't have both. Isn't that what the Lord said? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth and, and this is true for anything that rivals our love and devotion to God. You cannot serve God and dear ones, are you filling in the blank of your own hearts? Because I purposely did not say what the end should be. Only God and you know what that blank should be filled with. Only you know the false God that needs to be buried and removed. And don't delay. Don't hold it in your hand and think about it and, and, and put it up to the sun and see. Just one last time, let me look at it, how beautiful it is. Just one more time, let me see. Let it go. Burying a false God is not all that needs to be done, though, is it? Oftentimes we commit the act of burying, but we don't forget where it was buried. Just in case we feel the need to dig it up again, we dig it and we put a big rock there amongst all the smaller rocks. No, brothers and sisters, it's not just burying. Jacob calls his family to purify themselves and to change their garments as well. And what is this all symbolic of? It's symbolic of the very, a very simple principle, and it's this. God's transformation in our lives involves not only a renunciation of false gods, but the substitution for fresh affections for God. Purify yourselves. Change your clothing. As the Apostle Paul would say to the Galatian church, for as many of you as been baptized into Christ have put on or have been clothed with Christ. The Christian life is not only a matter of putting off, which is a lifelong battle. It's also a matter of putting on. Putting on Christ. Not just taking off sin. If we were only in in the business of putting off sin, then we would be, if you will, little Pharisees. Legalistic Pharisees who are only trying to be moralist, 
who are only looking at each other and saying, He's doing the right thing. He's doing the right thing. He's doing the right thing. And you can be a moralist and still be far from Christ. Some of our political uh, candidates right now, they are vying for, they are uh, shouldering and elbowing right now for your attention. And what are they trying to display to you? They are good moral people. That they will do the right thing. That they will make your life so much better. Without putting on Christ. We do not merely cease our pursuit of sin. We embark upon a pursuit of holiness in Christ Jesus. As Jacob consecrates himself to the Lord, he consecrates his family as well. God has called the house to go up, and Jacob is leader of the house. So when he calls Jacob the leader of the house, Jacob calls the rest of the house, and they arise and go. Uh, Can I say to you, this is not old-fashioned. This is what God has commanded. Uh, Our dear member said, you guys are old-fashioned because you teach that the husband is the leader of the home and that the wives must submit. And our dear member said, that's what the Bible teaches. God has ordained the man to lead in the home. And the man gets his marching orders not from his own mind. This will be a good idea, I think, for the family. The man gets his marching orders from God. He does not go his own way. Therefore, the wife lovingly submits not just to the man, but to God's word. She's not just submitting to a man who's making these things up. She's submitting to God who has directed the man who is then directing his family. The difficult thing was that Jacob seems to be, at the very least, a man who was an inconsistent leader in his home. That's, that is a very difficult thing. It's very difficult for a man to be a leader for some time and then not be a leader. For a man to lead and then not lead. It causes the woman, and women, I don't blame you at this point, to say, if you're not going to be a consistent leader, then at least I know that I will. So then when the man wants to lead again, she says, well, hold on a second. I've been leading for a long time, and now all of a sudden you want to come in and lead. I'll let you do that. But will you keep doing that? And there's a struggle there, isn't there? Now the woman is watching the man. Right? With that that watchful face. That critiquing of how you lead face. That face begins to go away when, man, you are more consistent. And what happens is, in the previous chapter, do you notice that when all of the the interactions between leadership was going on, it was not Jacob who was speaking, it was his sons. What were they doing? They were basically saying, Dad, if you're not going to lead, we will. And even in this chapter, there is a challenge to the patriarchal headship when his son Reuben lays with his concubine. 
He's essentially challenging the old lion for leadership over the pride. He's acting as an animal and not as a son. And part of the reason for it is because his father has been so inconsistent in, as head of his household. But now Jacob seems to have arisen from his former place of indifference and now stood and standing with confidence in the place of headship. His boys were growing up. And imagine that sometimes dad is hot, sometimes dad is cold. And it's affected them. Men, may I say to you, be consistent leaders in your home. Don't have your kids thinking we're going this way this week and then that way this week. If there's one thing that is important in your household, it's consistency with their kids. They need to know we are doing worship today. And when we don't do worship, it's a very weird thing because we always do it in our home. You mean we're not praising and worshiping God today? No. And then when you leave it for a long time, but then come back to it. And then leave it for a long time, but then come back to it. Here he is finally saying to them all, come now, let us purify ourselves from all of these false gods. Let us bury them and let us live for God's glory once and for all. It is our responsibility, men. It is not your wife's responsibility. Don't make them carry that, lo that load. Come now, let us put away all of these false gods. Let us live to the glory of God. And men, may I say this to you again. Let your family see that who you are and what you profess is one and the same thing. That you are not man of God here and man of the world there. That you are man of God here and you are man of God there. And in your dealings with them, when they are facing different trials throughout their lives, you will answer it as a man of God and not as a man of the world. And your children may or may not be believers. But through your consistent leadership, if they do come to faith one day, you can at least say, God used you to play a part in their coming to faith. What joy that will be when you can say that God has used you to bring them to Christ. Isn't that what you want most for your children? For them to love God with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength. For them to grow and to be good men and women of God in this world. To be salt and to be light. You play a part in that. They travel on. And as they sojourn, the Bible says that great terror fell upon the cities that, around, that surrounded them. Jacob had feared that they would be pursued by the surrounding cities, but rather great terror and fear fell upon those cities, and they, they, as it were, hid their faces from the people of Israel in fear. Here is Jacob. At last, after 20 years, with his family, bowing before God, Worshipping the one true God together. And now he is bound for rich spiritual blessings ahead of him. But the path will not be an easy one. Our second and final point. The painful path of blessing. 
This is verses 9 to 28. The painful path of blessing. As Jacob enters the land of Bethel, he builds the altar. Just as he said. He's in the promised land. He's finally made it to the place where God has revealed himself to him. He is at the gateway of heaven. And while he is there, the nurse of Rachel dies. Her name is Deborah. Now, though we don't know much about Deborah, the scriptures make it a point to mention her name and that she has died, which means this. She was not insignificant. As a matter of fact, the scriptures will never mention anybody who has either lived or died. That does not matter in the in the whole scope of the scriptures. So what is the point then? Jacob has been visited by God. He's received precious promises from God. He's been shown the pathway to righteousness And God has promised that he would bless him and be with him. But it does not eliminate the existence of all pain in his life. Which means this, though you may may, and very well may be on the right path, it does not mean that the path will be absent of pain. Haven't you known that? That though you be walking with God, it does not mean that you have and will not continue to experience pain. Great pain even. And it seems as though this death took some kind of toll on Jacob's family. But do you notice that they journeyed on? You have to. What are you going to do? Stop when it gets difficult? The Lord appeared to Jacob, reaffirmed his new name. You are Israel. You're no longer Jacob. Reaffirmed the covenant promises that he made with Abraham and said that they will be given to you, Jacob, and fulfilled through your family. It is a wonderful reestablishing and renewing of a right heart before God. And then yet again, after being blessed by God, Jacob's beloved wife now, Sarah, is found to be in labor as they are traveling to modern-day Bethlehem. She's giving birth to her second son. And you know the the length of time when she was barren and she gave birth to Joseph. And then maybe another length of time where she is barren. And now she's, she's pregnant and she's about to give birth. And it's a painful birth. The scriptures almost at this moment seem to slow down for us. To emphasize the weight of this moment. Rachel, the beloved wife of Jacob, the the woman whom he had worked years to achieve. She's in the middle of a life and death delivery. Now, for many of us, a woman dying in labor is a very rare occurrence nowadays. But for a woman to die in labor during this time, was sadly a very common occurrence. What was more common was for their child to die in delivery. And here is Rachel, traveling, unable to go any further, 
falling down to the ground and, and, and needing to give birth now. And they are traveling. They are what Abraham was. They are Hebrews. They, they are sojourners. And Rachel can go no further. And she does not have Deborah, her nurse, at her side any longer. She's died. And there is a battle for human life on both sides here. It is either going to be the life of the wife, the mother, or it is going to be the life of her own child. And it is through this tussle of life and death. And some of you women, I don't know, but some of you women who have given birth may have felt like when you were on that delivery bed, this is as close to death as I have ever felt. And imagine your delivery without all of the modern medicines that you were able to take advantage of. And even for those who are, are, are able to just pop out kids like cookies in an oven. It is no easy task. I'm, I can imagine. I can't, I can't even imagine. My wife needs, don't say you can imagine. You could never imagine. I can't even imagine, ladies. But in the midst of this tussle of life and death, Rachel is encouraged by her midwife. That is that person who helps to deliver. And the encouragement is this, don't fear. You have another son. Don't fear. It's going to be okay. And those of you who have been, at least me, in the living room, you know, the wiping of the head and the calming of the woman, it's going to be okay. It's going, you're almost there. You're almost there. Well, she was almost there, yes. But almost there also meant for her that you will also lose your life. For a woman to have a son during this time was a badge of honor. And she has not one now but two. You remember how her sister Leah wore, I have four sons now, and now my husband Jacob will love me for sure. This would be Rachel's last badge of honor. And she will never see this baby grow to be a man. Verse 18, it came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Ben-Oni. And what a moving moment this truly was. The love of Jacob's life, dying in childbirth, and her last breath, the last dying wish of Rachel is this, name him Ben-Oni. What does Ben-Oni mean? It means the son of my sorrow. You imagine? And names meant much today or that during that time. When someone said your name, they knew exactly what, they, what that name meant. We don't know what any of our names mean for the most part anymore. You're just Jim and you're just Bob. But if you are Benoni, you are the, the sorrow of your mother. And again, this comes on the heel of God's blessings. You are, you are Israel. You will have this. This will be your, your future. And instead, if you can imagine, there is Jacob cradling his 
newborn baby alongside or beside the cold body of his wife that he had loved for all of those years. And her last dying wish is name him son of my sorrow. It is though this boy is the fruit of agony and pain that has now cost her her life. And, and it is true. Think about your husbands or your wives. And I know this is a most difficult thought. Some of you may be happy to think about this moment. But, but, but think about this moment for your husband or wife. It is their very last breath. Some of you may say, praise be to God. But I hope that that would not be the case. That whatever their last wish was that you would see to it that with all of your heart and might that that last wish was granted. Name him Ben-Oni. But Israel says, no, his name will be Benjamin. His name will not be son of my sorrow. His name will be son of my right hand. Now, what is this? Is this uh, Jacob being Jacob again? Is this old, old twister swindler Jacob? No. And how do we know? For the very next verse says in verse 21, then Israel journeyed on. Then Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. He's not called Jacob. We've known that for some time his name has been Israel. But for the very first time in Jacob's life, he's been acting like Israel. And there's a reason for that. It is because it is the very first time in the whole of Jacob's narrative that he's been truly placing all that he is into God's hand. How, do we, how can we say that? This was the most difficult moment, no doubt, in all of Jacob's life. Harder than leaving his mother and father. Harder than leaving Haran. Harder than, harder than the confrontation with Esau. This was his beloved wife who has died in giving birth to his beloved son. This was a sore, sore sovereign providence, providence of God. Unspeakable sorrow. I can't imagine losing my wife in childbirth. And yet he has the faith and strength to say, even in the midst of this, that even this will turn out for blessing. And even this son will not be known for sorrow. He will be known for blessing and for being my right hand man. I will call him son of my right hand. And if you know the rest of the book of Genesis, you know the story that Benjamin plays in the story of Joseph. He is kind of the bow that brings it all together. Joseph will later say, if you are who you say you are, bring that son here. And that son will be Benjamin. The one who has cost his mother her life. But the one whom he is overjoyed to see. He is son of my right hand. It is that he, Jacob, is a man who is convinced that God keeps his promises to bless his people. 
And he's come to the conviction that even this, the greatest of his sorrows, will even this will turn out for blessing for God or to God's people. That's faith, isn't it? That would take some faith, though, wouldn't it, for you and I? The courage to say that even in this great tragedy, God will receive glory. Can I say to you, though, that that's really the path of the believer? It is a path of blessing and fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is also a path that will not be absent of pain. If you've been walking with the Lord for any amount of time, you know that the, the, the path of righteousness is a painful one. And Jacob's life is really Paul, the apostle's words in Romans 8.28, set in a man's real life. His real life struggle to believe that God really does work all things together for good. He's not only saying this is painful, this is hard, but he's also saying this is not the final word in the story that God has set for my life. Even in this, God will show that he is faithful. Why? Because he's kept every promise. I have no reason to doubt him. Dear ones, in closing, I believe God has most advanced me in my own spiritual life with things that have been hard in my life. It has been when God has placed me in the darkest of times and in the hottest of fires that I have learned that the faith that he has given me is really gold and not a tin can. I've been most advanced when I've seen those idols that I've kept back from God, those idols that have, hold, that have kept me from holding on to Him alone, believing in Him alone, wanting Him alone, demanded of me by Him. And when they are buried in those unmarked graves, never to be found again, oh, how much I grow in Christ. It has been in those moments that I've had those long and deep, you know, those long and deep relieving breaths of freedom. Finally, that is gone. Finally, he is gone. She is gone. That may be the truth for your life. Finally, it is gone. Free in Christ. And in his freedom experiencing freedom and yes at the same time experiencing painful painful experiences and then freedom again liberating joys again and then painful experiences and what that what are they that they are the the reality and the knowing that there are still weights that are yet on me that god is liberating weight by sinful weight and every time one is removed i get and feel just a little bit lighter Oh, that's gone. Until finally you and I at the very end will be able to breathe our last and say, I've run my race. It's finished. You not only need to know Romans 8.28, that you can be secure when things go badly, but you need to know Romans 8.32. 
Because God in whom we trust gave the son of his right hand to become the son of his sorrow upon the cross in order to keep his promise to those who trust in him. And since he has kept that promise, God says we know that everything that we have and will do and will be will be good for his glory, for our good, and that we might grow. You know the song, I ask the Lord that we might, that I might grow. We've sung it many times, or its proper name, prayer, for, for, prayer answered by crosses, and, and it begins like this, I ask the Lord that I might grow. And John Newton goes through all of the ways in which he wants to advance in God, and the way that God answers his prayer is by giving to him sorrow. By giving to him pain. By giving to him a cross. And his question is, why all of this? And God's response is, this is how I answer your prayer. It's through fire. So that you can see you are gold and not a tin can. There are dark days ahead of Israel, aren't there? Isaac will die at the end of this chapter, which implies he's been alive this whole time. His son Reuben will disgrace him and later be cursed. His beloved son Joseph will disappear for, for quite possibly as many years as he was in Haran, 20 years. But even in all of this, Israel will hold firmly to the unchanging hand of God. My dear brothers and sisters, where is your all in all found this morning? Is it found in some false God? Or is it found in Christ alone? If it is in some false God, put it away. Purify yourselves and let us together go up to Bethel. Let's pray.